You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. So I was looking through our uh, global sensors network data and I was uh, noticing some weird attack incidents originating in South Africa. That's Ophir Harpaz. She's a security researcher at Gardacore Labs. The research we're discussing today is titled The Nanshu Campaign, Hacker's Arsenal Grows Stronger. Joining us in a few moments will be Daniel Goldberg, who collaborated with Ophir on the research. I just decided to take a deeper look into these attacks, which uh, share the same attack flow uh, involving MSSQL scripts and uh, some more of that. And I saw outgoing connection to the attack server. When I tried to access this server, it was completely open and all the files were accessible. And actually, this is what made me keep digging into this because, you know, we actually had a very nice insight to all the attacker's infrastructure. So this was a nice base to start with. Hmm. And now at the point when you discovered this, did you have any sense for how widespread their campaign was? 
At this point, actually, no. Only when we saw uh, very interesting log files on the attack server, we actually understood how big the extent of this campaign was. So we decided to call it Nanshu based on a text file we saw on the attack server, which had this string as an attacker name. I see. So let's dig in here. So you have access to this server. Take us through what things did you discover there? When we looked inside, that's Daniel Goldberg. Then we discovered that beyond the obvious part where we found multiple copies of malicious payloads, we found copies for different operating systems, different versions, bug fixes over time and so forth. We also discovered a copy of their attack infrastructure, which meant folder structure describing their scanning for victim techniques, which was split into port scanning, checking for vulnerabilities, brute forcing modules and their attack scripts, allowing us to like build a complete flow chart of how the attacker goes from step A to step B and so forth until a final payload. So they really left sort of out there in the open a blueprint for everything that they were up to. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's dig into exactly what they were doing here then. Walk us through how does this work? Uh, the interesting file that we saw on the server was named uh, Turtle, and it was an archive. When extracted, we saw all the different modules of the attackers. So as D Daniel mentioned, we saw uh, a port scanning module, scanning for uh, various IP ranges and looking for MSSQL servers on the Internet. And we also saw a brute force tool to force try and figure out the passwords and the usernames of the detected MSSQL servers. And once the attacker had these, the credentials, they could execute MSSQL scripts on the victim machines. Once they had this access, they dropped a payload and the crypto miner. And as we wrote in our blog, also a rootkit protecting the miner process and the payload itself. We saw all these on the attack server. One second in addition here is they built themselves like it's pretty much built as Lego blocks where each part was independent and streamed results to the next stage. They had a list of IPs with MSSQL is passed on to the brute forcer, which outputs a list of vulnerable servers. Each one gets its own independent stage in like this attack pipeline. And the way we most see it as a, just a set of pipeline stages is as part of the attack, if you attack an MSSQL server, you end up with system level permissions. Despite that, the attackers still used a privilege escalation vulnerability to verify, to make sure that in this flow or in every flow they attack, they uh, gain system level permissions. I'm intrigued that they were using, uh, you know, something as basic as brute forcing it. They're going through common password lists and just playing a numbers game here. Yeah, just like that. We actually saw the files with common usernames, common passwords. We shared all of them in our uh, Git repository uh, of IOCs. Yeah, basically just general brute force on the MSSQL servers. Now, it sounds simple, but our experience over the past two, three years of looking at these types of attacks is there a huge amount of servers that are completely vulnerable to this, to simple brute forcing. And it's not just no-name servers set up by some kid doing IT for his parents' business. This is large corporations where they have one or two and you only need one database that has been improperly set up. This is not a problem limited to small businesses that can't afford anything better. And so is this simply folks who are accidentally neglecting to reset these credentials? Yes. We've also saw, but we don't have 
the full extent that the attacker clearly also compromised vulnerable versions of phpMyAdmin, meaning that at the same time, these could be administrators who are neglecting also to patch their servers. And there's probably a strong overlap between people who don't patch their servers and people who use bad passwords. But that's what we're seeing here. Well, tell me about the ultimate goal here. I mean, they're looking to install a crypto miner. That's true. Actually, uh, the currency is named TurtleCoin. And this is the miner we saw. We noticed a couple of different mining pools to which the miner connected. They ran the payload, which dropped the miner and the rootkit protecting the miner. And yeah, we saw many, many versions of this payload malware, around 20, actually. A side fact of how he worked is that there's access. The attacker has lists of tens of thousands of machines with database administrator credentials. In terms of persistence, what were they doing to the systems there to make sure that these miners kept running? They did two important parts. The first one is they generally made sure, using a variety of common registry methods to make sure their payload remains running upon restart. This is typical. The less typical part was they installed a rootkit that would prevent antivirus and system administrators from killing the mining process and the rest of the payloads. Hmm. They also did some privilege escalation. What were they taking advantage of there? They were taking advantage of a patched vulnerability from 2014 in the Win32K driver. This vulnerability allows you to execute a coded root kernel mode code. And what they did was use it to either change their access token to allow them system level of privileges or execute code under the system process, both of them equivalent in power. Now, the actual sophistication of the crypto miner they were running, you know, I've heard where there are, you know, some of these will uh, intentionally limit the amount of processor resources that they use to try not to draw attention to themselves. Did you have any sense for what was going on when it comes to that? So this crypto miner did not try to limit its CPU or memory usage. However, it worked very hard to hide its tracks. This is, was one of the first times we've seen crypto miners that are running deliberately obfuscated code and their network traffic is tunneled through legitimate Windows applications. Hmm. So at the firewall level, like the host Windows firewall or the EDR level, then there's nothing suspicious going on. All you have is a PowerShell communicating with the internet or some other, like they split around different legitimate Windows binaries that have legitimate purpose communicating with the network. Now, in terms of the overall sophistication of these folks, what is your sense there? They have uh, multiple levels. Some of the tools that they're using, such as the exploits, are world-class, done very well. The rootkit driver is very well engineered and was clearly written by somebody who is incredibly thorough and patient and knows the details of what he's doing. And other parts of the infrastructure were done by someone that's less skilled than him. I'm not sure exactly how to characterize him. He made basic typos, like for some part of his attack, he used the wrong IP address for his server. He also had obviously operational security mistakes, like leaving the attack server open for us to go through. So I would say that this is a mixed team. Some of them have very strong technical capabilities and some of them like Whoever set up the server is not a high-end player, though he's still making good money, let's be honest. 
<laughs> it's interesting because I wonder, does the sophistication of these tools necessarily point to the sophistication of the attacker, or could it just point to the availability of these tools on the broader market? This is actually a good point because some of the practices we saw led us to think that this is just a common criminal, but the advanced tools that they were using pointed some access to, to very, very uh, technologically advanced tools. So we can't really attribute, but this looks like common attackers with access to advanced rootkits and the privilege escalation exploit as well. Do you know what the source is? Where these people seem to be coming from? We don't have an attribution of the group name or level like the with fancy a name. We can very confidently state that this is an operation run by people speaking Chinese because their exploit kit is taken from obscure Chinese language forums. Their server infrastructure has strings in Chinese. They use specific programs that are very common on the Chinese internet. Obviously, all of this can be used as to confuse or obfuscate someone's intentions, but this is done deliberately over months and over every part of the infrastructure shows either someone is very, very methodical in setting up the scene or the simpler explanation. It's someone who speaks Chinese at a high level. Yeah, I'd also like to mention that many of the internal tools they were using that we saw on the attack servers were written in a designated uh, Chinese programming languages named EPL, Easy Programming Language. And uh, this is a Chinese-based language. So this is a very strong direction. So once these folks caught your eye and you were able to get a, a better sense for the scale of what they were doing here, what did you discover there? How, how successful have they been? Do you have any sense for how many systems they've infected? So regarding numbers, we actually monitored the numbers of file downloads from the attack servers, and we saw that there were tens of thousands of uh, servers, uh, infected servers, that actually downloaded the payloads from the attacker's servers. So this is a good indicator for the extent of the campaign. I think we saw between 500 and 1,000 new victims per day is a good estimate. We don't know how many of them remained infected over time because crypto mining is, in the end, a very high noise operation. But this does indicate tens of thousands of machines with weak credentials or old software spread around accessible. Do you have any view into the cryptocurrency wallet that they were mining for? Any sense for their success when it comes to actually generating income? So we don't have the right access to be able to tell you that because... TurtleCoin in this case is very similar to other privacy-oriented cryptocurrencies where mm. there is no public availability of wallet information. Similar to Monero where you can see some of the transaction logs but you cannot know how much of the coin is kept in a specific address. In terms of prevention and detection, what are your recommendations there? Well, first of all, stronger credentials as a start. Having strong uh, username and password would prevent this attack from succeeding uh, in infecting victim machines in the first place. Following up to that, because obviously it's 2019 and this is still happening, then people need to invest more in monitoring their systems for a breach. In the end, as you mentioned before, there are crypto miners that work harder to hide their tracks. But the majority of attackers are still very easy to detect. Suddenly your server is spiked at 100% CPU and a lot of network traffic. This is something that you should be paying attention to. And in the detection end, there is no reason that your database should have system level access from the internet. 
at no point are you supposed to connect, oh, let's just connect from my home to the database with system and level permissions and just do anything I want. Hmm. It's a very, and it's so trivial, like just block your database from connecting to anywhere except from your office. There, that's it. It's not foolproof, but it would stop the vast majority of attacks. There are two interesting things that came up when we started researching the driver, the rootkit there. The first one was the use of a code signing certificate issued to a made-up company, which we're used to in the wider cyber world to seeing fake certificates being something used by nation states, used for important tasks and to sign important tool sets. And here is somebody using a shell company to sign a driver that they're using a day-to-day criminal operation. This is a huge change in the availability of uh, this particular technique. We've moved generally, like we obviously see over the last decade, more and more techniques moving from nation state to common criminals. So here's the next step where even a malicious code signing is something uh, completely standard part of the trade. The other thing is that, again, most of these uh, of the binaries we saw were not known online. And this complicates detection life because most security vendors uh, that look at binaries, I'm talking about, let's say, antivirus companies or EDR companies, they look at endpoints. They look at laptops, mobile devices, which have the highest attack surface. But this means that malware that's targeting servers is still a very open field. Even common attacks are not detected until they're widespread, or in this case that we see them because we really focus only on server malware. Our thanks to Ophir Harpaz and Daniel Goldberg from Gardecore for joining us. The research is titled The Nanshu Campaign, Hackers' Arsenal Grows Stronger. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice, then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.